Tag, football hipsters, but please leave behind your commemorative Borussia Dortmund dinner plate because we're dragging you back to Blighty. Oh, yes, that green and pleasant land of extortionate ticket prices. This is Deep Play. I'm Robert Malloy Vaughan, and I'm joined by a passionate convert to the struggle for transpontine nationalism, Joe Kennedy. How are you, Joe? I'm all right, Robert. How are you? Ah, uh, well, I'm as well as can be expected. Um, so, uh, last week we went to the Spirit of Shankly organised protest about ticket prices outside the Premier League headquarters. We did indeed. It was, um, it was a, an exciting day, wasn't it? It was, a, it was a very warm day. I got sunburned, I think, a little bit. Um, and it was an event that left me, and I suspect you, with uh, mixed feelings to, yeah. to some degree. There was lots to be excited about, and while we were there, it was very easy to get carried away, but... As with uh, all political protests. Uh, and football matches in yeah. general. Um, there's uh, a certain structural similarity between the two, perhaps. I think yeah, with football matches, it's the point. But with protests, you, you can lose sight of the, the wider point of it, actually changing things. In the catharsis of, of yeah. becoming involved in, in this thing. Um, so Definitely. We, uh, we went out and we uh, recorded some Vox Pops um, and our own muddled thoughts uh, on the day, and so check it out. We're inside what Simon Cooper and the FT recently described as the plutocratified uh, citadel heart of inequality, central London. Uh, we're here for the ticket price uh, protest against the the opulent citadel heart of football inequality, the Premier League headquarters. We're going to try and get some interviews with people. Who are you and why are you here? Uh, well, my name's Harry. I'm a City fan, Manchester City fan. Um, I live in London, but um, born and raised in Manchester. Um, ticket prices, are, obviously, it's just... Um, it's it's becoming increasingly unaffordable. Um, I mean, the London away games in particular. I mean, they're easy for me since I live here, but... Um, 62 at Arsenal was only the, the headline one that got attention, but I mean, the reality is 49 at Fulham, 59 at Chelsea. It's 49 um, at Fulham, the cheapest Premier League away game in London. Uh, probably, yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah, could well be. I mean, but then there's Wigan, is like, um, I didn't go to Wigan actually, but I think it's like 29, you know, so um, it's, it's. I mean, I find out. All of those uh, would be unaffordable for me, especially if it was a habitual thing. Yeah, well, I don't, I, I don't go to all the away games. I can't go to all the away games. Lost my thread. Yeah, I mean, I mean, twenty nine is, is, I mean, twenty nine. Uh, you know, ten years ago would have been unthinkable, really, even in the Premier League um, for for most games. I mean, my my season ticket averages out at about thirty pound a match, which. Um, 
I suppose have been conditioned to think that that's reasonable, you know, because, uh, and I suppose if you compare it to a single match ticket, it is nominally reasonable, but it's still a... 20 years ago, you'd been biased. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And maybe we should be. But yeah, it's, um, the, the, I think the, the notion behind this of all fans um, uniting is the only way that we'll possibly achieve any change. And I don't know a lot about Spirit of Shankly who've organised this, but my understanding is that some of the people who are involved in that are also sort of trade unionists and stuff. I know Jay McKenna is anyway. Um, and uh, that's probably the kind of perspective that we actually need. Yeah. Um, um, do you think this might be a case of too little, too late? Uh, I suppose it could be, but there's no point... Um, thinking that now do you know what I mean yeah. maybe I mean yeah I guess we all didn't see the writing on the wall fast enough <laughs> we were far too slow in that respect it should have been obvious a long time ago um, but we're here now and we can start to at least try Okay, so is it too late? We've had a what's seven hundred and sixteen percent inflation in Premier League tickets since nineteen eighty nine's figures. Uh, your thoughts? Well, that statistic does that come from Spirit of Shankly and the I'm the organisers of the demonstration? I'm not sure. It seems to be a a, a mean uh, increase, doesn't it? It won't be 716% at every club, but it will probably be mm-hmm, yeah. greater than 716% at other clubs. And this is obviously a huge problem. The the, det- the statistics we've seen show how far above inflation, you know, t- typical normal inflation that is. Football tickets uh, outdo house prices. Yeah. There was a poster going around which kind of used house price increases to sort of as an example of stability compared to football tickets mm. which is really really alarming because we're in the midst of a a housing crisis and a housing bubble well one of the things we saw that um saw on that poster was that uh, a stone island jacket which would have cost 400 pounds in 1989 if it'd gone um if its price had risen at the same rate of inflation as a football match ticket it would now cost something like three thousand pounds um I'm not entirely sure I would be convinced by paying £400 for a Stone Island jacket in the first place. But, okay, I mean, what I'm interested in here is is the nature of the question that was being posed on the demonstration. And to me, the excessive prices in the Premier League, which were the issue that the, the demonstration were focusing on, are only symptomatic. It's It's a symptom and... I think where we potentially find ourselves here is is in the rather difficult position of demanding a treatment to the symptom which which doesn't really address the underlying cause, which is the broader commercialisation of of football. And as such, I think, and this might not at all be what the majority of the people on the demonstration were interested in, maybe they very um, simply want to pay pay less money for their ticket but for me the value of an event like like the one we were on last week isn't inherent in the demand that's being made it's not inherent to the the notion of lower ticket prices i think that the issue of ticket prices can be used as a kind of stalking horse um which can be kind of pushed forward in in order to to um effect a broader discussion and and uh, struggle i suppose about what's happening to football in general so i don't know what you think about that well uh, we spoke to a couple of arsenal fans who uh had a sort of interesting take on 
the uh, inter- commercialism of the game and its relationship with fans. What these Arsenal fans have done is uh, adopted black and yellow, predominantly black, as a colour scheme for their anti-commercial protests within the Arsenal fan culture. The only reason why we've got black is basically because it's the only club, the only colour that we ain't had as a shirt yet. Right, as well, Nike, Nike haven't Nike used black. Nike haven't used black, black for us. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so we got your kind of like red and white, yellow fans, and blue. Fan yeah, basically, yeah, we red used white, it, we, we chose it because no one would ever use that. And then about, within within a year, the, the club introduced a black and yellow, black and gold scarf <laughs> to try and push down the fight, you know? Yeah. Quell it. Cut, try and co-opt it. Yeah, well, basically, yeah. we've got loads of tourists coming in they don't realise what the fight's oh, about yeah, yeah, so yeah. put it in the shop people go in fill their bags up with black and gold scarves thinking you know they've bought uh, an Arsenal scarf uh, it's quite clever I... but it's marketing people it's a bit it? like a... well we've got good marketing people in our team as well so we're fighting them and we're, we're actually at the table with them discussing things so good luck with that but well they need a bit more we need to do a bit more militant stuff okay so what I found quite interesting about talking to the Arsenal fans briefly was that they were one of the few groups of people on the demonstration who were talking explicitly about things that weren't to do with ticket prices. Um, their resentment, which seems to be quite long-standing, was clearly to do with the commercialisation of football in general and the effect that that has on the experience of going to watch the game. Um, so they were making, I think, a, a, a slightly broader argument for some kind of alteration of how we how we go to football now. Um, yeah. How what it's like to be in a stadium, which I think is is important. Um, what what did you think about them? Uh, I can't really imagine them getting what they want back from Arsenal as an organisation. In terms of too late, I cannot see. Apart from a breakaway uh, FCUM style club, I, I can't see how they can ever get that back. And uh, it gets to the point where you wonder where people like them, people like us, who who cherish a certain idea of the match-going experience, which isn't just a, a sort of occasional treat on top of your television supporting. I wonder if we're a bit like music hall enthusiasts in 1965 <laughs> you know, wondering why the hell people the people, people are getting so crazy about the Beatles <laughs> I mean are, are we like rock that? band is in swan back yeah um, well the thing is we know that there are are ways and I don't want to curve back to, uh, to last week too much but we know that there are ways of having something that's a little bit more like the the old experience okay so let's not talk about Dulwich we're talking about about York a little bit before the program, and I have to say I've gone to gone to see York as a, a Darlington fan, um, and that to me was an experience that is not particularly dissimilar to how going to football was twenty years ago for me. There are terraces, there are fans there um, who are singing and jumping up and down, and and so on, and all all the good, enjoyable things that fans do. Um, so it does exist somewhere. What we're saying, I think, is is that. It, it certainly seems to me that the idea that there can be some kind of um, uh, reverting to some kind of prelapsarian footballing condition in the Premier League is is a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Manchester United is not are not suddenly going to kind of knock down their their kind of fifteen thousand seats behind the goal and, and rebuild the Stratford End as a terrace. It's just it's not going to happen. Um, even safe standing, that's not the the same thing. The thing with safe standing. No one was really mentioning it. Um, 
at the protest, but um, I mean, it's mentioned a lot, and you get the impression that people sort of think they're going to substantially reduce the ticket prices by by increasing the capacity by eight thousand or so with, mm. with some safe standing. Um, whereas surely, you know, they're not going to do that. They're, the demand will be there, and they're just going to charge as much as before. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably the case. The the idea that that getting to stand again would also mean um, a reduction in ticket prices is idealistic at best. Um, People would be so excited about standing again in in the Premier League. You can just about envisage them charging more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can definitely. Um, so what? some people seem to be premising their arguments on last week was on the English Premier League suddenly becoming like the Bundesliga um, yeah I was going to ask you about this uh, but your, your thoughts on the sort of the vogue for uh, German football culture and and whether this can be implanted upon uh, English football and culture and also in a sort of wider uh sense what is English football culture is there anything, is there anything to it beyond just happily accepting price increases <laughs> well there's a lot to to English football culture and we will unpick that in various ways over the series of podcasts we're doing I think one of the things I suspect is that it's not um, a football culture which can in a wholesale way take another culture that has organically developed over a period of time um, and and adopt every characteristic of it the the thing about German football at the moment is on, on one level it's nice, I've been to football in Germany but I've been to football in Germany at a similar level to the kind of football I like watching in England so it's hard to say, you know, is, is the Bundesliga that much better? Um, is it great because you can stand safely and because the the ticket prices are are lower you know I think that it's probably a fad and I think that that's quite an English tendency isn't it? There was a mania about um, Spanish football Mm. Um, it depends on who's being successful and we've had it with Italian football as well Um, I mean I remember the the early 90s protests where we all wanted Fans were campaigning for Silvio Berlusconi to take over their club. <laughs> we should add that today is the day where Silvio Berlusconi has finally received his um, uh, inevitably to be deferred prison <laughs> sentence, that he is no longer officially a free man. Our thoughts are with you, Silvio. <laughs> so, yeah, G- German football culture is, um, is something that's being fetishised at the moment. But the moment you start fetishising something in that way, you, you turn it into a product, I think. You, but you potentially turn it into a product. So maybe the, the clubs can listen and uh, uh, Germanize the so-called match day experience a little bit. Bavarian-style uh, <laughs> uh, beer tents, uh, like at the Christmas festivals. That's it, that's it. Well, we, you know. Eight pounds for too big to drink a uh, glass of beer. <laughs> or a bratwurst, yeah, we... we yeah, well, we, we have Im- imported aspects of... This. It's a really good analogy, actually. There have been attempts to import the German tradition of Christmas markets into the United Kingdom over the last 10 years, and what you see is very much a kind of simulacrum. 
An expensive um, simulacrum. An expensive simulacrum, which is nothing like the, the actual thing. And, and I suspect it would be very similar if uh, Newcastle United, for example, and I think it's deeply unlikely to do this, by the way, but if Newcastle United, for example, were to suddenly decide that they would be a bit more like Borussia Dortmund or, or any German Bundesliga club, for that matter. So, yeah, I'm suspicious of it. You know, are, you, are you suspicious? Are you... Um, I'm suspicious. I'm also jealous of the cheap tickets. I mean, you know, uh, certain tickets in Borussia Dortmund, for example, are only a little bit more expensive than um, tickets in, in the Ismethian League. Uh, and that's quite alarming. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was asked at the protest um, on Wednesday uh, about why as a non-league fan as a visible non-league fan because I've got a big Dulwich Hamlet thing painted on my back um, why, I, why, why I was there it was um, it was A out of solidarity B out of uh, my citizen journalism and C because there is a process of inflation trickling down to the non-leagues mm-hmm, as well definitely. so it's an orange I mean when the Premier League was formed it would have been probably better for all of us if they hadn't had promotion and relegation, if they'd just been a closed league. That is interesting, isn't it? I didn't, well, we might be um, we might be talking more about something like that next episode, mightn't we? But I, I think that's an excellent point we can explore a little bit here. Um, yes, the trickle-down effect would have been less likely to happen if it had been a, a separated off Super League, which may be some kind of franchised uh, interchange between between the divisions um, you know, I'm not in any way endorsing like a mechanism uh, for Milton Keynes to, to get a club yeah <laughs> well that, that kind of thing it, it would would we have found ourselves paying £10 to get in in the in Isthmian League um, had the, the Premier League properly sectioned itself off or ring fenced itself that way what we need is a, a non-league breakaway I think <laughs> refused refused relegation <laughs> The flare, the flares are up, the flares are blowing. What do the flares do? They flare. The march has started, ladies and gentlemen. We are meandering through one of the poshest parts of London with a flare, a load of banners. It's quite beautiful. Um, at the protests, um, I was tired in between night shifts uh, and we've suffered a bit of uh, l'esprit de scalier. <laughs> um, we should have asked uh, the fans of clubs who have any chance of playing in European competitions uh, whether they would accept um, a loss in competitiveness uh, through significant, significantly cheapened uh, ticket prices. Uh but we didn't ask them, so I guess we're going to answer for them. Uh, we're going to discuss the European question. Joe? Yeah, well, we're like 19th century statesmen, aren't we? I feel like feel like Disraeli or something being asked about the European question. What is the European question? Um, it's, it's very hard to project myself into the position of a supporter of those clubs. I genuinely do not know what it means to a Liverpool or Man United fan... Um, to be to be in Europe, uh, you know, a kind of long-standing non-soccer AM, non-Richard Keys, non-Smash It, uh, Liverpool United fan. Um, would they? Is that the priority for them? I mean, obviously, United fans have their memories of 1999, and uh, Liverpool fans have their memories of 2005. Um, yep. But 
is that the be all and end all for them? Do they define enjoyment as as doing well in Europe? What did well, uh, I get the impression that United fans take not much pleasure from um, uh, winning the Premier League mm. nowadays. Um, so, I, and from afar, this seems to be the case with other big clubs uh, like the likes of Barcelona and the uh, the tenth European Cup win obsessed Real Madrid. Mm. Um, that their seasons are failures if they don't win this one trophy that mm-hmm. can be won by all the teams or rather all the big teams of of a whole continent um, but I mean how you know, how many people actually benefit from this structuring of, of English football towards a handful of teams having a chance of uh, winning the Champions League because they don't even care about the UEFA Cup um, I mean, one of the given footballing reasons, alongside ha ha ha, improving the English national team uh, in the formation of the Premier League, was to um, improve competitiveness in Europe. Um, sounds a bit like George Osborne's global race, doesn't it? <laughs> Which we're all going to benefit from. Um, yeah, it's a question we really should have asked because, but you know, my suspicion is. They wouldn't tolerate this. Yeah, well, again, it, it's really hard to say, isn't it? I, I think that that probably Premier League fans um, do do place quite a lot of emphasis on on success in Europe, particularly teams who don't have a guaranteed slot in the Champions League, like like Spurs, um, like Liverpool. It does like Arsenal. Like Arsenal, it does does mean a, a hell of a lot to them now. Um, and I wonder if, to a degree, that's natural. If if you achieve a, a level of relative dominance, if you can predict that that every season you are going to finish in the top six, which Arsenal are for the foreseeable future, I would imagine, you have to find another way of of uh, <laughs> I suppose kind of in, investing your your supporting libido in in the game, you know, which yeah. will take the form of of Europe. I think. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a good question. It's a difficult difficult one to answer, isn't it? Would they would they accept it? And I know I keep harking back to to non-league, and mm. yeah, yeah, of yeah. course I should. But like, and particularly the uh, the the kings, the aristocrats of the non-league, Dulwich Hamlet. Um, you can invest this libido in winning the Ismithian Division One South, and it, and it can be wonderful. Um, maybe what we need to do is instead of Transnationalizing football, we need to regionalize it. We need to break up the football league and uh, have everything based on you know six regional leagues across the country. So <laughs> you know, there's a multitude of teams who've got a chance of winning. Um, I'm not overly confident the Arsenal and City and Tottenham fans would have agreed with me on that one. Well, <laughs> probably not, but it would um, cut down travelling costs, something, wouldn't it? Um, but we hit a question that I think we talked about a little bit last week, which is about about ceilings. Um, as so, if I I go to Dulwich and Darlington, two teams, I know that 
Darlington next season are expected to cut through the division that they've just been promoted into and be very surprising if we didn't finish in the top four and to be honest we'd be quite surprised if we didn't win that division which level is it? Um, the equivalent to Isthmian 1 South oh, in, so the, in the tier, North yeah. England yeah so the 8th the tier so Darlington should go through the 8th tier and they should also go through the 7th tier um, Dulwich in the 7th tier next season uh, the the main question at the moment seems to be achieving some kind of stability there. Fans are always going to want uh, want to see their team do well, right? Um, but there becomes a, an issue when when um, you become so habituated to success that there is no other way of doing well, which is where Europe comes in um, for for the Premier League fans. It's if they're getting if they're finishing second third every season. Then um, that they know that they're um, succeeding on some level in the in the Premier League, uh, so they have to to go and invest themselves in something else. Um, but the, uh, the problem is not that they have to find something to some, some level of competitiveness to invest themselves in. The problem is that they've become so uncompetitive mm-hmm. uh, at uh, what is already quite a big level. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, there is no it, it, there is no competition in the sense that there was maybe 18, 19 years ago. At the, at the beginning of the Premier League, there was no guarantee when the Premier League began that your club would finish in, in the top four positions. For any club other than Manchester United, I think, in around 1992-1993, United could reasonably predict that they would finish in the top five. Um, but I think the first Premier League season you had a I can't remember exactly where Arsenal, Liverpool and Leeds finished but they didn't do well I remember the first Premier League season I believe it was a was it QPR with a top place London team I think they only Something finished like sixth um, and around that time Wimbledon managed to finish to the top yeah. Team. yeah yeah it seems incredibly open so it was more fluidity yeah. wasn't there then and, and, and I think the you know, having kind of come to this circuitously, the reason that Europe has become such an issue for fans has, is because the there isn't that fluidity there anymore. There is no reasonable, predictable risk of Arsenal finishing 14th. The the season that Manchester United won the FA Cup, Ferguson's trophy, his first trophy as manager, I think United finished 13th. But, yeah. Something like that, I think. Uh... Bringing this back to the subject at hand, uh, ticket prices and um, fan unity, uh, we had an interesting conversation with some Tottenham fans, uh, so mm. let's flick to that. What do you think about the idea of a boycott? Is that possible? Would it work? Is it possible? Uh, it's unlikely, very unlikely. I think it's one of the only things that will actually work. You imagine a mass boycott against every uh, in every club. You yeah. see it in Germany. The part of the reason why things happen in Germany is because there's a unity between uh, the, uh, the, the ideologies. There's a single ideology amongst supporters in Germany. They understand what needs to be done in order to force the powers that be into doing things that, uh, that are correct for the game. England, fans in England don't do the same thing. We haven't had, we don't have a bond between. We're not supporters as a group, but today we are. Lack of organisation. Yeah, there's a lack of organisation, and, and I think generally in England we're not activists. We're not a country of activists, and what it actually takes is a little bit of activism, proactive activism. Um, but to answer your question. Boycott is is something that's ultimately crucial. I mean, what can it can't be ignored? It's going to make national press, 
uh, sorry mate. And um, you know, it, it, look, can you imagine what what the, the kind of damage it would do to the the reputation of the Premier League if on the tenth minute of the first game of the season this, uh, there was a mass exodus at the stadium. No, you're but still be paying the money though. Yeah, I mean, but you, if someone's willing to pay money to make a stand, that's actually powerful in itself. Or if no one turned up, I mean, that would be an amazing thing as well. But, but isn't there a sort of like reserve army of potential day trippers, absolutely. especially in the top top levels? Of the they're being banded to, which is, um, which is the issue that we have, really. Yeah. It's like um, Spurs are happier that someone in Indonesia you know, is wearing a Spurs shirt than the actual fans in their doorstep who are being priced out of games. I, I can appreciate that um, there's going to be fans around the world. The Premier League is a global brand now. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, wouldn't say any, I wouldn't tell anyone to not support Spurs, whether they're from Indonesia, America, whatever. They're all entitled to follow whatever club they want. The problem is, is at expense of a globalisation of the game, local fans are being excluded. And it's that it, the, the 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 trademark and, and the uh, what's saleable about Premier League football is built on the traditions that were set out by the fans. Spurs hate Arsenal not because Sky Sports tell them to, it's because we hate them. They invited our area. That's why you know that, that that's the principle of it. But it's nothing to do with Sky Sports. It's nothing to do with them. But they use that as a principle. You've seen all the montages. You've seen it when they you know uh, this is the game. It's the big one. Super Sunday, Monday night football. We want three o'clock on a Saturday. They turn your uh, turn your love into free labour exactly they use it and market it and that's why I love the word yid at Spurs it's the, I mean, forget all the political and, 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 and potentially racist connotations to that word that's something they can never put on a mug or a t-shirt they can't sell that word and that's why I love it that's why we have to maintain it and keep singing it because it's, the, it's, it's it belongs to the fans and the club will never be able to put that on a t-shirt and sell it alright so uh, your advice to other clubs would be to adopt the nickname motherfuckers or something just, just to make Martin Tyler blush I think we're we're, we're, we're uh, fortunate and unfortunate to be in a position where we have a word that uh, creates it is difficult to talk about but uh, there are issues with it and I'm not you know that's not what this is about and just one thing on boycotts for me you've got 21,000 season ticket holders who've paid up front the yeah. chances of them not turning up for a game in my opinion not likely boycotts have been proven not to work unfortunately so demonstrations marches and protests the 12, the 12, 12 uh, it's essentially a boycott of atmosphere the 12 12 protesters in Germany uh, where the fans refused to sing they stood silent for 12 minutes based on uh, 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 the, uh, the law that um, I can't remember the, the principles no no no, no but it's, a, it's, a, it's a mass action that, that creates it and, and, and you think people not turning up to a game wouldn't have a massive impact of course it would I think it would have a massive impact but you have got to convince 21,000 season to get to turn up in terms of mass impact uh, the, the numbers uh, of young people going to Premier League games is declining severely, isn't it? Uh, it's a it's an ageing uh, demographic, and so uh, pr- probably not out of choice. But people like myself are either watching on television, losing interest in football, or in my case, going to a non-league club like Dulwich Hamlet. Um, can the game survive? Well, time will tell, essentially. Um, ultimately, you'll be in a position where you're losing a generation of fans. It's a cliche that's been banded about, but it's true. If, if young fans can't come together to uh, to support their club, and if they rely on their parents to pay, and most parents can't afford to take their kids and go themselves anyway, uh, then obviously it runs a massive risk of damage in the future. 
the, you know, the, the, the turn, the terraces and, and, and things that happen in the stand. I do think so. I do think the game as we know it, we are trying to, well, I shouldn't say save it because it's kind of a bit grandiose. But um, I think the game, is, the, the game will survive, but the game as we know it, perhaps won't. And that's, what we're, that's, that's, that's part of the appeal of um, this protest and many of the protesters in the immediate future, um, you know, because... we've got our last chance, isn't it, really? Well, yeah. And I definitely. think at Spurs specifically, their concessions end at 16. So I had a guy contact me last week. He's 15, he's 16 in September. Could he get a junior membership this year? Well, yes, because he's 15 on the day the season starts. How the hell is he going to afford tickets next year? He's 16. He's doing his GCSEs. He's at school. How can he pay 50, 60, 70, 80 pounds for a match ticket? It's scandalous. Crime. You simply have to turn to crime. Yeah, well, basically, yeah. <laughs> We're living in Tottenham. <laughs> What you, what you don't understand for young people, when football used to be such an important thing, it is crucial to forming relationships, to venting anger, oh, yeah, to getting uh, uh, purging some of the things that frustrate them. Each. I'm not talking about hooliganism. I'm just purely going on the ter- uh, terraces and supporting your team as loudly Hugging as possible. Hugging strangers when you score. And all exactly. That, yeah. All of that is important, and it's important for young people to be able to do that. And, and, uh, and it's a bit of a stretch, but there is uh, there could be comparisons to the suicide rates and the fact that. Uh, uh, young men can't go to football anymore. Three and, f- three and four suicides in, in England uh, are by young men. And, in, if, and part of the reason is because they can't vent. They can't um, talk about their issues. I talk about, I, I, I vent and I, I can, I can ex- purge my issues on the Ceresis. That's what I do at Spurs. That's a, that's a great point to end on. And it's a psychology PhD a research subject for someone out there. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, the Tottenham fans. Yeah, no worries. Goodbye. Cheers. 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 Nice one. Cheers. Okay, those Tottenham fans were... Um, full of interesting points, um, Joe. Well, they were the. Um, they seem to be the media face of the protests, didn't they? They were being interviewed by ITN when we. Um, when I first tried to speak to them, ITN uh, bu- uh, bumped me, and mm. it made me realise uh, how much of a chasm we have to fill uh, before we can reach the heady heights of being outbid by uh, Sky TV. <laughs> The the thing they they were saying a lot of things that I thought were pertinent, um, and some things that I think are quite problematic as well. And the thing I'm going to pick up upon is maybe not the obvious one. I noticed that the um, at the start of that interview, the the guy used the term ideology to talk about how fans in Germany have and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but fans in Germany have a kind of common ideology now. He's using ideology in the the sense of a belief system, which is fair enough. That's that's one way of using the term. It's not necessarily the way that I would tend to to use the term myself. And and I'm going to try and quote notorious football um, dismissing literary critic, uh, an excellent literary critic, Terry Eagleton here. Um, who I think um, calls ideology a set of practical norms, or that's one one way in which he he defines it. So, so the um, the things that uh, allow us to apprehend our place in the world, as it were, um, and on those terms, on, on that kind of slightly uh, kind of nineteen sixties Marxist set of terms, you you wonder whether this protest was uh, an ideological challenge, a, a challenge to something systemic to do with football, or whether it is actually reaffirming those those practical norms. Uh, by going along to a protest which says, OK, well, you know, we, 
effect you know we might well be happy with things if if ticket prices were reduced are we just um <laughs> a, kind of affirming idea football football's ideology as is um what do you think um do you mean by protesting uh against it it's okay for it to be as it is like a sort of like a like a paid penance yeah yeah penance is a, a good term there i think um by protesting against a specific aspect of what's wrong with football at the moment we say well if you change this we'll agree with the other things so okay a hypothetical scenario which we're quite interested in manchester city for example stay with um, you know maintain their current ownership model they they're owned by uh, ridiculously offensively disgustingly wealthy uh, middle eastern um plutocrats whatever you want to call them oligarchs and if these plutocrat at stroke oligarchs said okay well you know what we can afford to do this we're going to give you 20 quid tickets we're going to give you a 400 pound season ticket would people then say well okay that's all right i don't mind my club being owned by by these people as long as they're going to give me a 20 quid ticket we're, we're straight into the kind of uh, territory of Roman satire then aren't we we're into um, Panem et Circenses. Uh sorry my Latin's probably a little bit rusty these days uh, bread and circuses uh, it, is there a risk that we give them what we want and then we end up kind of um, affirming the, the ideologies which are played out in football well what's been interesting about the oligarchs is um, that this these things haven't happened. These uh, breadcrumbs haven't happened. I mean, there was a rumor in the first year of Abramovich, Abramovich's reign at Chelsea that he'd got a f- fan focus group together, and they said they liked the idea of not having a shirt sponsor, and he, he was apparently going to go with this. And then the next thing you hear, there's a massive deal signed with mm. Samsung. I think it was. Well, I remember in a, a few years before. Uh, Bramovich took over Chelsea. Darlington were purchased by uh, a very, very wealthy northeastern businessman. I'm not going to say his name here, um, mostly because I shudder every time I hear it. Um, he was, I think, in the top 20 wealthiest people in in Britain at the time. Um, and what he did was he didn't. I think he didn't only freeze ticket prices. I think he reduced them for the first season. So we ended up with something like six pounds. To, to get in and this bearing in mind this is only 14 years ago that was very very cheap so it was 6,000 6, people or so came through the gates um, that year and he built up uh, an incredible amount of what turned out to be unearned, un, unearned loyalty um, so ticket prices you know I think that example shows that ticket prices can be used as a, a, a as a way of seducing and, and buying loyalty for doing things that are otherwise unjustifiable. Uh, dodgy owners in the Premier League don't seem to be under any pressure anyway where they'd need to buy loyalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is the case as well. I mean, may- maybe you would find something like that more at a lower level. Uh, and maybe this is a, a kind of older model of football ownership that we're talking about here. The, the guy I'm talking about bought the club and, and ran it as a personal fiefdom for a, a couple of years. Um, his motives were and remain unclear. 
Is um, this the guy who built the preposterously too big stadium? Built the twenty five thousand seat stadium on on the on the bypass, um, which was ultimately the the death of the club as was. Um, and yeah, you're right. In the Premier League, I don't think you'd find that because the demand there is ridiculously high. As you um, said, I think the Spurs fans there, there will always be that reserve army of, uh, well, not of labour, obviously, but a, a reserve army of of uh, day tripping fans who will who will come in and, and buy tickets. I, yeah, I did actually read someone on Twitter with, uh, said in in response to the the unrealistic notion of a Tottenham fan boycott for the Tottenham and Arsenal game next season they said I hope so then I'd have a chance to go <laughs> which um, I mean obviously my mind isn't diseased enough to be interested in the North London derby but some people are perverts and uh, I can understand that if I was in that situation it would be very very tempting to uh, be a scab yeah, because well, I mean, in a sense, why would you would you feel solidarity with the people lucky enough to a be able to afford to go and be in the uh, position ahead of the queues to get the season tickets? Exactly. I mean, like, was was what we saw last week an attempt to build solidarity in general, or was it a campaign against a particular definable issue? Um, well, I mean, the Tottenham fans, well, one of them said he doesn't mind if people in across the world support Tottenham mm-hmm. but 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 uh, local fans are being uh, overlooked uh, but he did say he didn't mind people in, was it in Indonesia or whatever supporting Spurs I don't think I'd, I'd mind people anywhere in the world supporting Darlington or, or Dulwich Hamlet to be honest I, I think that the issue is that people from Norway, from Indonesia, from Japan, don't necessarily see the immediate um, social issues that are at stake around a football club. Like the Arsenal fans said about tourists coming in and buying black and gold scarves Mm -hmm. in the the club store, not realising, thinking it was just uh, one of the... Uh, fluffy decorations of fan support. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you don't you don't want to judge those people, do you? Because they're not doing anything wrong. Essentially, they they don't know. Well, there, there's a sort of moral argument against tourism, but that's for uh, <laughs> possibly for another podcast. We could talk about uh, football tourism as part of the tourism industry mm-hmm. and its whole kind of timeshare gentrification effect on cities. And um, I've just remembered the um, one of the earliest representations of football tourism. Book. Around Arsenal, um, I ever saw was a nineteen ninety three episode of Neighbours, um, where uh, <laughs> where Rick Alessi and, and Debbie Martin ended up going to an Arsenal game because they'd had their uh, their camera stolen by a young urchin um, and chased him into Highbury. Rick, when, when the game was Neighbours in Neighbours, they went to London and uh, they chased him into Highbury when the game wasn't on. And that must have been half the show's budget for the. Uh... Yeah, well, it, the, the the match footage they used in it was actually Ian Wright's debut for Arsenal as well. So, um, I, be... I hope this is on YouTube. If it is, we'll link it on the Tumblr. Um, okay, there's a there's an elephant in the room, a, a gigantic elephant compared to the mouse we're talking about. Um, <laughs> right, we're, we're we're talking about a protest of three hundred people. Um, in Istanbul and even more topically in Brazil there's debates with 
uh, strong football elements debates. Sorry, sorry, mass protests debates. Uh, the mass protests, strong football element to them. Um, we've got in Istanbul what sort of spiraled out of a campaign against uh, redevelopment. Um, you've now got uh, the huge ultra cultures uh, of the three main Istanbul teams at least sort of coming together in a display of solidarity providing food for the occupiers um, in one brilliant case uh, hijacking a bulldozer to fight the police water cannons and by the way what police water cannons are terrible things do not just blithely accept the Met Police getting them uh, and then in Brazil we've got a protest which started out being about uh a relatively small but significant uh, rise in public transport fares and has spiralled into a sort of mass debate about the uh, redevelopment of for the next year's World Cup. Yeah, uh, well... Th- these are massive, significant, you know, historic protests. I think Turkey is an issue that we should probably cover in, in another episode. I think that it's it taps uh, feeds into a number of other things which are interested in Brazil for me here is the issue but in both cases you have a an issue which is local and specific that has allowed for a kind of coalescing of people around it um, which has then kind of moved on to become a more kind of systemic critique and I wonder if you know it, it, can football be an instance of something like that in, in the United Kingdom in a good way talking of critique I believe you've got on your bit of paper there a critique by cultural critic Mark Lawrenson <laughs> Mark's Lawrenson um, well yeah apparently and, and I didn't see this myself because um, for reasons of, of time poverty and also for reasons of not being particularly interested I haven't been watching the Confederations Cup but um, I was told that Mark Lawrenson said of the protesters in Brazil I'm not going to attempt his voice um, I'm not sure I can get that door um, but Mark Lawrenson apparently said they might have a point but to be fair they've gone too far <laughs> which I think is fascinating really um, he knows not what he says but, but the the implicit point there and we've seen this time and time and time and time again um, not only in football but it's very common in music as well isn't it um, the notion that you can separate a cultural activity from from politics at large um, that uh, football is this special thing which um, can be appreciated as as distant and autonomous from uh, everything else. I was going back to your point in, in episode zero about the uh, focus being entirely on what happens in that rectangle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. De- definitely. The, the idea that that for for the kind of activity that takes place within the rectangle everything else should shut down and Lawrenson seems to Lawrenson seems to have apprehended which I think is quite unusual for him actually that, that there is a kind of legitimate cause of grievance here um, but then the idea that it threatens the football because nothing must threaten the football um, he believes that they've gone too far and I wonder what kind of depth of um, South American political understanding Mark Lawrenson actually has to know whether or, or or not they have gone too far um, just Poss- guessing possibly less than, than what I've got um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, an episode about mega events um, about the, the very morality of, of whether we should watch next year's World Cup or not um, will be coming at some point in the next year 
we can feed on our own experiences of, uh, in my view, not ad not adequately protesting the social impact of the Olympics in London. Um, but that's something to look forward to. Um, I think we've covered everything. Have we covered everything? Uh, well, have we, have we covered everything? We probably we never will cover everything. <laughs> it, it tends to spiral, doesn't it? Um, no, just to, to wrap up, I guess um, it is an interesting counterpoint. We went on a very limited demonstration last week, and what I want to say about it, by way of qualification, was that there was a lot of kind of good faith there. We you know we used those uh, existential terms last week good faith bad faith and I think there was a lot of good faith at the protests I think that there was also a degree of bad faith and I said at the when we we're actually there I felt optimistic about it and I still do feel optimistic I think that the the good faith that was observable there is something that can be built upon um hopefully the bad faith is something that can be can be moved moved beyond but ultimately you know I'm glad it happened I'm glad we went um I just hope that the kind of the issue that was at stake there can be a stimulus for a much broader discussion about what's happening with football at the moment and where it stands in relationship to politics at large um and it uh, what I would be saddened by would be if it ended up becoming isolated as an issue about ticket prices effectively yep i i agree with that um and referring back to the good faith bad faith dichotomy um i think you saw that but the Tottenham fans uh, knowing that a boy a boycott would could, could work spectacularly utterly doubting whether it could actually be set in motion uh that's it uh, I've been Robert Malloy Vaughan. I've been Joe Kennedy. And next week we'll be talking to Terry Eagleton about his love for Luton Town FC. Uh, this has been Deep Play. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>